High Value Investors Edge live listeners. This week's episode comes from the Value Investors Edge Virtual Investor Forum, the first ever time that Jay Mensmeyer and the team are putting this on. The forum has been running for the past two weeks, focused on IMO 2020 and tanker markets. It's featured the Value Investors Edge team, as well as members of the forum, industry experts, and professional investors, and of course, several management teams and industry executives, as you would expect from listening to this podcast. We'll be publishing transcripts from the discussions with industry executives on Seeking Alpha, and you can access the full array of discussions by signing up for Value Investors Edge on Seeking Alpha's Marketplace, where it's available for a two-week free trial. Today's episode features Jay Mensmeyer of Value Investors Edge Live, talking with Ardmore Shipping CEO and CFO. Without further ado, here's the podcast. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another live edition of our virtual tanker and IMO 2020 investor forum. We're now about to host uh, Ardmore Shipping. We have Tony Gurney, CEO, and Paul Tivnan, CFO, on the line. We're going to have a good chance to discuss the IMO 2020 implementation and the product tanker sector, specifically from the MR segment. We'll also have a chance to look at the chem tankers a little bit as well, talk about those market dynamics. Uh, disclosures before we begin. I have no stock position in Ardmore Shipping, but I might have long positions in crude or product tanker stocks. I'll provide disclosures if relevant. Please note we're recording on the morning of 9 January 2020. So if you're listening to a recording at a later date, those disclosures might have changed. Nothing on the call this morning constitutes official company guidance or investment recommendations in any form. With that said, welcome, Tony. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Good morning. All right. So as we kick this off, we've, we've been having uh, several live events throughout this week talking about IMO 2020 and its implementation. I wanted to get perspective from you. What, How has this impacted your business thus far in, in this year and the tail end of 2019? And have there been any surprises from your perspective? Um, yeah. So to start off uh, with the uh, how it's impacted our business, I think in summary, very positively, uh, it's clearly had a big impact on product tanker demand. It's also, we think, um, having an impact in disrupting supply. Um, the operational technical aspects of implementation have, um, I would say, been fairly well executed. Uh, but we understand from our own experience and from, uh, from market chatter that uh, there, there are, in some cases, substantial issues with, uh, with the new fuel as well as with the operation of scrubbers. So, it's um, been very, very positive for the business overall in the sense that it's extremely disruptive to the oil market, and that translates into higher rates for our business. Yeah, we seem to be seeing that across the entire crude tanker sector and also, the, of course, the product tanker sectors lifting up on that as well. Um, specifically for the MR sector, that the rates are very healthy, right? They're, they're up year over year, uh, but we haven't seen the same sort of extremes that we've seen um, in some of the LR2s and especially the crude tanker sector. Uh, why do you think that is? Do you, do you think we can see those extremes or do you think we're, I mean, we shouldn't complain about these rates, but uh, do you think there's further upside ahead or do you think this is probably what we're going to see? Well, I think the first point Jay, I'd like to make is that these rates are pretty damn good for MRs. And um, you have to remember that the capital investment in MR is a small fraction, for example, of the VLCC. So when you capital adjust and OPEX adjust, uh, MR rates today are up in the equivalent for VLCC, uh, up in the uh, 80 80,000 a day range, right? So, so as a return on a return on capital basis, uh, these these returns are 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 great. They're 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 excellent. 
Um, the other point to make in that regard is that, look, it is true that, that the smaller the ship, the less volatile the earnings uh, path will be. Um, but over time, our experience has been that the returns on capital are about the same. So there's a little bit more upside and excitement in the bigger ships, but the rates tend not to be as sustainable. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for breaking that down. Yeah, because I, I think we look at the rates a lot and we see, you know, mid-20s and it doesn't seem that exciting, but you're absolutely right. We we have to do like an IRR and, and long-term and, and look at what the returns are. And, and the returns are, are quite good. And I think sometimes um, investors get caught up in, in the eye-popping figures of, say, $100,000 a day for VLs. And, you know, if you translate that to MRs, maybe it'd be something like 30. So so we're really not that far off in, in terms of those returns. Um, you know, the scrubber spreads have, have really uh, peaked up here in, in the last couple of weeks. And, and I know um, from your company's perspective, I know you operate the smaller ships. So initially, uh, you didn't go with some of those scrubbers. Um, how do you see the economic return at this point uh, from your perspective as MR owners? Let me come to that in a second. But I, I just want to extend the discussion a little bit on the rate levels and just, just highlight the fact that the even 20 or 25,000 a day for MRs translates into some pretty exciting numbers on EPS cash flow uh, and dividend basis. So, you know, 20,000 a day for Ardmore is $1.30 in earnings annually. That's because our, our dividend policy is formulaic. Uh, we pay out 60% of earnings. That means that 20,000 a day, the dividend is 80 cents, um, 20 cents a quarter. That's a 10% yield at current rates, at, at our current stock price. And it's a PE of about six, right? 25,000 a day, the EPS is 275, that's a buck sixty-five in dividends, which is a twenty percent yield, and the price to earnings, you know, at that level would be three, uh, three times, three x. So, so I, I think, you know, it, it's important to translate these things into the numbers that matter the most to investors, which are the ones I just mentioned. In terms of scrubbers, um, we look. Everybody has their own perspective on this, and their own strategy, and their own philosophy, if you will. Um, we, uh, we're very analytical uh, and fairly sober in, in our assessment of capital allocation opportunities, and uh, we focus on long-term cash flow and returns on capital. Um, we, uh, you know, from the start and, and repeatedly even kind of rerunning the numbers, have observed that for an MR, uh, in order just to recover the capital investment over a three-year period, uh, you'd need around $225 a day. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, dollars per ton uh, spread, okay? But that's over the full three years, right? So um, we're at a point in the market now on the switchover that's really you could characterize as maximum disruption, and we do think the spreads are going to come in. Um, we're also not sure, you know, how, how viable scrubbers are going to be on a long-term basis, both from a technical standpoint, regulatory standpoint, and even just operational in terms of availability of HSFL. So, for example, if you want to recapture or return your capital over a two-year period, um, that's that's more like $320, $330 spread, right? So, you know, so far the spreads are exciting. Uh, the TCE premiums are exciting. But this is really a matter of capital recovery, and we're essentially nine days into <laughs> in, into a new uh, new regime. Uh, so we, we think it's a, it's a good start for the scrubber quick ships. Um, We've always felt it made a lot of sense for really big ships, um, but for the way we trade our ships, which is spot-oriented, very optimistic, um, you know, kind of tramp trading around the world, we just didn't feel um, that the that the economics of the investment were sufficiently compelling. 
Yeah, I, I can definitely understand that, especially since when you had the decision to make as well, the, the futures were, were a little bit lower, right, as well. And I, I, the futures curve still seems to be about the same for 2021, but I, I know it's lifted in, in the front half of 2020, but uh, you bring up good points that, you know, you need 225 for three years. And I, I don't think uh, I don't think most of us, I think even the more bullish ones of us uh, aren't really looking for $225, you know, three years from now. Um, Clarify for for people on a call um, the the breakdown of your fleet in terms of modern and eco vessels. I know eco is kind of a marketing term, but I also know a lot of your vessels were recently delivered. Uh, does that reduce your fuel expenses as well? We um, okay. Our, our fleet out of twenty five ships, um, twenty one of them are eco design and very very modern. Uh, the remaining four are modified ships that we call eco mod, where they're Japanese built. Everything built in Japan is efficient. These were great, but we improved them, so they're actually not far off eco-design ships in terms of consumptions. Um, and that's our whole fleet. Um, of those 25, uh, of the 25 ships, uh, 19 are MRs, and the remainder are handy chemicals or slightly smaller, um, kind of smaller flexi-type uh, chemical tankers. So it's a very modern fleet, very fuel efficient. Excellent. So the entire fleet is essentially right, a fuel-efficient eco, if you will. And can you talk real quick to the average age and then the life expectancy investors can expect to see on those ships? Yeah, so the average age of our fleet is six. Um, we have sold off some older ships in the last two years. We're happy we made that, those decisions. Uh, they would not have fared as well in this environment um, as they did back then. Um, and, um, you know, in terms of, um, sorry, the second part of the question, Jay, was, just look uh, at the life, life expectancy. Yeah. So typically, look, without a doubt, MRs consistently they scrap at between kind of 22 and 27 years of age. So they last a long time. But their ability to trade in what we would call mainstream trades with oil majors and traders um, is out to about 15 years. Now, in a strong market, uh, those players will take older ships, but typically they really prefer the newer ships, the 15 years or less. Um, and and that's that's why we think having a modern fleet is so valuable. Um, in addition, when the ships get older, the operating costs and the dry dock costs um, accelerate uh, substantially. And when they when they do trade out from the main you know mainstream trades, they go into regional trades in uh, West Africa, Arabian Gulf, Southeast Asia, places like that, India. Yeah, that, that makes sense, Tony. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, I like to sometimes ask some of these questions, some of the more basic ones, right? But just so everyone on the line has a chance to understand, look, we have, you know, 10 years of, of peak earnings, nine to 10 years uh, with your company, right? And then we also have another uh, perhaps up to 10 years of sort of uh, tail earnings, right, on, on the current fleet. Um, when, when you speak to that sort of 15 plus uh, discount or, or or more regional trading, if you will, um, how do we quantify that? Like, let's say the current market is, is 25,000 annualized. Uh, what sort of discount yeah. could we expect those older ships to start seeing? That's a really good question. I think those markets are very opaque and typically companies like Ardmore wouldn't really trade in them. Uh, so in India, it's really coastal um, coastal trading, uh, you know, and it, it's a very domestic business. Um, same thing in, in West Africa uh, and in the Arabian Gulf. So uh, they, they would earn less. I mean, I think that if you look at you know, my, my guess is that they might be earning two or three thousand dollars a day less, perhaps more. But they'll also not be having to spend the money um, on crew and training and, and uh, maintenance that that you do in in the more mainstream trade. So it, it's just a different business model and not one that companies like Ardmore participate in. 
Yeah, it makes sense. You also have you have a little bit of savings um, from that, but it's offset by the higher fuel burn, of course. And then, of course, those those routes tend to be a little bit less uh, lucrative on the regional side. Um, you know, yeah, most uh, uh, most of your fleet, of course, pretty much the entire fleet is eco, so it's not really relevant for you. But it, for investors thinking about the entire market, you know, it helps to differentiate between the two. Um, we, we've heard some interesting notes about the handy size market and uh, also some of the chemical stuff. Um, what are you seeing for that particular segment on your side? Are, are rates strong there? Well, you know, again, we have two handy size ships, but they trade in chemicals, so they're a little bit different. Um, they've been trading very well. Uh, so uh, we don't want, I don't want to get J2 specific on on current earnings because we, we just do that at the time of our earnings call. But but market levels for those ships and chemical trades have been very healthy. Um, in terms of the 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 handy market, which are these kind of 37,000 deadweight ton size ships, which are essentially the same size as an MR, but they're a little narrower in the beam, and they're more efficient when it comes to port costs in. Uh, markets like the the um, uh, the Baltic uh, and um, Atlantic uh, Europe, and in particular in the Mediterranean, those rates have been very strong. And a lot of it has to do with uh, winter weather conditions, as well as some uh, strike activity in France and things like that. So we think that some of it is obviously, you know, I think in a way in that market, the underlayer, the backdrop is not simply the supply demand fundamentals, but also, you know, the IMO 2020. Uh, additional layer of demand, but on top of that, you've got a confluence of, of events around, you know, typical winter market conditions that have really driven rates up a lot, and they've been up at those levels for um, about a month now, uh, and you know they could continue for a while longer. Right, I understand. It, it's good to see that because a lot of times, you said, of course, you do participate in the chemical market, and, and that's strong as well. And you know, a lot of times, the the handy size and and also the chemical uh, carriers are sort of an afterthought, right? We we focus on the headline. Um, MR and MR2 rates, but uh, it's good to see they're they're holding up across the board. You know, as we get uh, a little bit deeper into this uh, IMO 2020 season, you know, it's only been really about a month and a half here with with ships loading the fuel. Um, Have you noticed any sort of new routes developing, any sort of triangulation, uh, any sort of MGO trades? Uh, Yes and no. (laughs) Um, We're in the middle of it right now, and it's a little bit murky. Um, The data is not exactly real time. Uh, It takes a while to identify patterns and, uh, you know, collect the data and then identify patterns. It would appear, logically, that there's a lot of gas oil flowing from the east into the Atlantic Basin um, that that we think is is continuing. I think the the overall point to make is that that the, the demand for gas oil is, I think, much higher today than anybody expected. And there are, there are a few drivers um, you know, behind that. Um, but that, that clearly is resulting in, um, you know, in, in new patterns emerging, but we just can't quite see them yet, other than saying that you know, clearly Europe must be importing a lot of gas oil uh, because they're already short middle distillate, so they've got to be importing a lot more. Um, but what's interesting is that um, you know, with the strong market, Ships are going faster and they burn, burn more fuel, right? So that's uh, point one. Point two is that that the amount of ships that had scrubbers installed across all sizes and not just in tankers um, is less than anticipated um, for a variety of reasons. But one of them is that, you know, in the autumn when the tanker market started strengthening, you know, a lot of people decided to just keep trading uh, rather than going in for scrubber, scrubber installations. And then the third reason um, is that uh, the the amount of disruption and at the moment, the, 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 essentially, the difficulty in, in, in stemming and making available the new VLSFO 
is such that the pricing for that is very attractive. Um, and so it's very, very close to gas oil. And a lot of, a lot of owners, uh, us included, are just, you know, stemming gas oil instead of VLSFO if it makes more sense logically given the trade you're going to engage in. And then the final point I'll make that I think is just emerging now or understanding it is that if you're, if you're loading VLSFO and you're not sure about the quality, you're going to load additional gas oil just in case you can't use that VLSFO so you can get to the next port. So there's probably a lot of extra loading of gas oil taking place right now as a kind of an insurance policy. Very interesting that, yeah, you'd have to load up the extra um, MGO as an insurance policy. I've also heard issues with like waxy, almost like a waxy sludge of some of the blends and, and using some of the other fuels to kind of wash it out, if you will, as you approach port. But yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting implementation. Have have you seen any, personally with your fleet or, or with some of your close partners, have you seen any issues of this fuel contamination? I mean, we, we hear the stories on the market, but just wondering if you've had any personal expertise on that. Yeah, look, we, we've had um, we've rejected a lot of VLSFO stems. Uh, uh, some some of them, um, you know, you know, we we don't have any operational problems resulting at the moment. We've heard of uh, some ships that have had you know extensive damage to their main engines as a consequence of bad fuel of the new the new type of fuel. Um, and overall, we get the sense that the that the lead time for stemming or you know arranging the bunker supply and the quality issues that are arising are turning out to be extremely disruptive on the supply side of, of vessels, right? So, you know, if you've got to wait in port a few more days because you're bunkering, you're going to miss your canceling date for the next cargo, they then have to scramble and find a replacement ship. If you've got an engine problem you need to resolve or divert to bunker somewhere else, you're basically reducing, you're reducing the efficiency of the world fleet and you're essentially reducing available supply of ships uh, to meet demand. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a little bit of a rocky implementation, and I suppose that's to be expected anytime you're producing these new blends. And uh, of course, in my, my understanding is there's kind of two ways to do this. The refineries can produce the fuel directly, or you can have the components that are shipped across the world and then blended on site. Uh, can you speak to the current uh, balance between those two methods? Not really. <laughs> it's just, it's a, we're, we're at the point of maximum disruption at the moment, and I expect that things will settle down. Um, I think we're going to be, I think things will, compared to let's say a year ago, we're going to be in a disruptive environment for more than a year. But I also feel that the, you know, the, the spread between the HSFO and the VLSFO or the high five spread, that's going to gradually start coming in for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and there'll be, you know, you know, over, over time, uh, the, the better quality blends and the, the more reliable sources will prevail. And they'll also find ways to make this stuff that's more efficient. So I think competitive pressures and, you know, an establishment of standards and reputation will result in a new pattern emerging. Um, and, you know, we think that will result in the, in the spread coming in uh, quite substantially uh, and the disruptive aspect of what we're dealing with uh, coming in as well. But what, what is another interesting point to make is that it seems like the percentage of these new blends, it's actually just middle distillate since you're just diluting down the bad stuff, is quite significant. It might be 60, 70% at the moment. And again, that's another reason why distillate demand is so high right now. It, it definitely makes sense. And yeah, I know some of these questions are super technical, right? We're just trying to you know, wrap our arms around things. And uh, one, one of the things we've heard in the market is that the uh, straight run VLSFO, of course, it's usually dirty cargo because it has sulfur and, and it, 
therefore is not necessarily a, a, a product a booster at the moment. Uh, but when there's blending components or when there's more gas oil MGO demand, of course, that's a clean cargo. Um, so we're just looking to see if there's any sort of, I guess, demand boost coming around the corner if there's if there's more of this uh, blending and, and more of this uh, fuel shifting and stuff like that. But it, it, as you said, right, it, it remains to be seen and, and we'll see what the market impacts are. Yeah, Jay, just to, to, I, I would like to comment on something which is, is directly impacting our market in that regard. Um, and that's the fact that Demand for Affimax is, is very strong, and the rates are very, very strong. And as a result, um, the, the, there's an ongoing migration of LR2s from clean into dirty, because an LR2 is essentially a, a coated Affimax. And um, you know the numbers that we have would suggest over the last few months, another 30 ships have moved over. And the reason why is that you know there's the there's the, the other side of the coin to the story, which is you know how do you get rid of all the uh, the high sulfur fuel? Where does that go to? Um, so you know, so you know that that that's a fuel oil trade, but it's predominantly an Affirmax type trade, and that's creating a lot of demand there, which is then then drawing supply out of the CPP market. Yeah, very very interesting. Uh, you know, we we have a lot of commentary and, and questions regarding storage, right? And and we've heard about some of this HFSO storage. Um, can you speak a little bit more to that? And then have we also seen storage in in some of the clean components as well, or is that just a uh, just a dirty fuel thing at this point? You know, there, there was a lot of storage, um, you know, particularly big ships and mainly off of Singapore uh, leading up to the switchover, and they're being drawn down now. But that's mostly VLCC seems to be getting absorbed back in the market nicely. But there's not a lot of evidence yet of a lot of storage activity, but my gut tells me that you're going to see oil traders jump in and buy up a lot of the HSFO. Um, and, you know, because it'll be so cheap uh, and... They'll, you know, there'll be logical markets emerging and they'll make a lot of money off it, but it's probably going to require a lot of storage, floating storage. Yeah, it, it makes sense. And, and it, it, we'll start to see some of those patterns shift around a little bit. Um, last sort of question on shifting trades and, and shifting patterns. Um, we've heard a little bit about triangulation. I know you said those routes are still kind of to be determined as, as we go into IMO 2020 here. Um, how do we think about rates in the most accurate sense, right? Because a lot of the benchmarks maybe don't capture uh, some of this arbitrage and some of this triangulation. Uh, for example, the TC14 is is sort of a triangulated route. Is that is that sort of an accurate way for investors to kind of gauge the strength of of the current rates, or or is there needs to be a premium on top of that? No, I think I think it's it's fair. Um, it has to be recognized that TC214 as a triangulation is an artificial construct because it assumes you can fix the same ship twice, <laughs> you know, instantaneously. Whereas it's a sequential voyage, um, so you don't get the same rate. Uh, necessarily, but clearly uh, that market is very strong right now. And for the Atlantic Basin, that TC214 triangulation, then basically ben everything else is benchmarked off that, whether you're trading down to South America or down to West Africa or whatever. So it's all variations on a theme at that point, and the differences might be short haul versus long haul. So for the moment, the shorter routes are paying a big premium than the longer routes. Um, and, and so that, that's maybe one factor that, that can be considered. Um, same thing happens in the Pacific or in the kind of the Pacific region. Um, the route really would be kind of India, Singapore, Japan, and back, um, with two or three routes. Um, and so, you know, in terms of understanding where the market is today, uh, the, those, those triangulated routes are your best indication. 
Definitely makes sense. Uh, it's just good to have you know a, a viable index and, and stuff to look at because I know sometimes uh, when they're shifting trade patterns, the, the index either you know usually understates, but sometimes um, in terms of like fuel shifts now, sometimes an index might overstate things. Let's uh, so just making sure we have an accurate perspective. Uh, last question on sort of market rates before we we pivot to maybe more company specifics. Uh, it's this is sort of a segue there. So just so in, investors that are looking at these rates can understand things, I know you won't provide specific guidance, and that's fine. Um, but is it fair to say rates are, are kind of in the mid 20s at this time in the MRs? And just remind us one more time, kind of what your earnings slash dividend would be if rates stayed in the mid 20s. Yeah. So again, I, I think we can observe what we're seeing in the market, but we don't want to necessarily translate that into um, you know into you know company performance uh, between earnings announcements. Uh, some routes are you know up in the 30s, others are down in the low teens. Um, on a global average, you're probably in the low, maybe mid twenties at the moment, uh, depending on the on the type of ship, um, and you know, depending on how you're how you're positioned, you could be doing better or worse than that. All right, excellent. So, uh, one last question, sort of on on your operations. Um, I know you didn't do scrubbers, and you have a very logical, you know, economic reason for that. Uh, did you hedge your fuel costs at all, or are you just kind of accepting what what the market brings you? No, we, um, you know, we feel that we'll continue, you know, prior to the fuel switch, we were um, accessing fuel in a very large global market and uh, post fuel switch, that's still the same case where LSFO is, is available everywhere. Uh, and so we didn't feel the need to hedge or enter into any specific term contracts. Um, the other reason is that ours is a, a very, um, you know, spot, it's, we trade 100% spot and it's really, you know, a trap business where, um, we could be trading to any part of the world, and the decision making around what voyage to take is very much a function of the pricing available at that time for that route for fuel. Uh, so we felt that um, hedging wouldn't really be hedging; it would be more speculating in this case. Yeah, that that makes sense too. It, it would it would also kind of stink if you, like you said, you you hedged one route that worked out good for you, and then you found your ship in another area, and it didn't really. Uh... Didn't really impact your your business, and, and the hedge didn't even help you. It could even hurt you, right? In certain instances, um, you had just mentioned, right, that the rates are fluctuating across the marketplace. Uh, you know, some routes are seeing as low as the low teens, and other routes are into the 30s. You're mentioning kind of globally, it's kind of a lower 20 to mid 20s. And then uh, just remind us again what sort of the earnings and dividend would be in that lower to mid 20s. Yeah. So again, twenty thousand a day um, would be a buck thirty in earnings uh, and an eighty cents dividend, which is a ten percent yield. And going back to the earnings, it would be a PE of six. And just to give a sense of the upside, the leverage uh, to the upside, um, a twenty-five thousand day market environment would be two seventy-five in earnings, which is a, a three times uh, PE multiple. Um, be a buck sixty-five in dividends, which is a twenty percent yield. So you know. The headline rate may not sound that exciting, but the the earnings and the dividend yield certainly are. Yeah, it's just a it's just a remarkable upside leverage. Just the way I mean, it's pretty much the same for most shipping companies, but it just is really interesting to see because twenty to twenty five doesn't sound very exciting, but you know it, it really starts to be. So yesterday in the market, I mean, Middle East tensions are always changing, right? But we 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 had this kind of like whiplash effect, right, of people just you know yep. dumping energy and dumping oil, and it seemed to kind of bleed over into the tankers. So can you talk about? I guess first of all, have you seen any sort of you know, quote unquote, war premiums or or Mideast benefits, if you will, if you if you say it that way. And then secondly, is there anything to worry about? Like, like is is uh, is peace in the Middle East, you know, like negative for tankers or is that just like a market misunderstanding? 
you know, whether it's uh, a good kind of disruption, which you might say IMO 2020 is, or a bad kind of disruption, which you'd say a war is, or a canal closure, disruption, you know, tends to be positive for um, for shipping generally and, and, and maybe tankers most of all. So, um, you know, having said that, uh, we, you know, like our first priority is, is uh, you know, the safety of our seafarers and the security of our ships. Um, we... We feel at the moment that things are business as usual. Um, we've gotten some questions about war risk premiums trading into the Middle East. And the reality is they haven't gone up because of this, uh, because they never came down from the last time. So we're at that elevated level that was established in, you know, sort of the second half of, uh, of 2019. Um, so we're still paying a, a substantially higher amount than, let's say, a year ago uh, for trading into the Arabian Gulf. Um, I think the other interesting thing is that... Um, the, the price of new fuel in particular off of Fujairu, which is the big bunkering port just outside the Arabian Gulf, is is uniquely high at the moment. And we think that's probably related to the geopolitical disruption at the moment because it's substantially lower even in Singapore, certainly in Rotterdam and Houston. So when, when we look at the spread right now, it's about 300, whereas in Fujairu, it's $400. Yeah, interesting to see that spread. I you, we've noticed it in the markets as well, and I think Houston is is one of the lower ones. Of, of course, Los Angeles, which which isn't really a trade for you guys, I don't believe, is is kind of the smallest spread. And then I think Fujairo is high, and then uh, Singapore was somewhere in the middle. But uh, in, interesting yep. to see that. Uh, it's just it's just always. Uh, you know, as someone who's been investing in these stocks for over a decade now, it's just always interesting to see how oil tends to correlate. Any any sharp move in oil tends to correlate to tankers. But, you know, over the long term, you know, one or two days or three days of whiplash oil prices, you know, probably not going to impact tankers. But, you know, it hurt your stock yesterday. And I mean, it hurt basically every uh, tanker stock. So something to touch on. But on a positive right. note, right, you mentioned, you know, where your cash flow is going to be, your earnings, your dividend potential. Um, you know, cash flow is is not problem right now you know you guys i don't see you're drowning in it um that'd be a little hyperbolic but it's it's strong right so can you speak to sort of your capital allocation priorities at this moment well yeah i mean i've already mentioned the dividend policy which you know again is not you know it's something that we set a few years back and and uh we we just simply reiterate the same formula uh, quarter by quarter we uh, we would still place a priority on paying down debt uh doesn't mean that we're not looking for acquisitions uh um you know you know in various forms but um, but we do, you know, when, when times are good, you want to pay down your debt in this business. And, and that, that certainly is a priority as well. Okay. So it sounds like sticking to that stated dividend policy, which of course is, is very generous. And then using all that excess cash flow, which of course, you know, when you, when you pay out a, a generous portion of earnings, you still have the excess cash flow from like depreciation expense and so on. It sounds like the rest of that uh, will go to deleveraging. Is there any thought or any prospects of any mergers or acquisitions at this point? Um, any looking at uh, new builds perhaps? You know, we, we never comment on those those kind of things. Um, but in a general sense, you know, we're, we're I mean, we're sitting here looking out the bridge window <laughs> where we sit on, on the, the, the business sea that we sail on. And we're, we're always looking for opportunities to build value and accrete, accrete value um, to our uh, to the company. So the answer is yes, but that's always the case. And in terms of new buildings, I, you know, it's a, it's a really interesting topic. And I know it was well covered last year um, on a lot of calls by a lot of different companies. But I think the consensus still is, um, in spite of the higher rates, it just doesn't feel like the right time to go out and order a bunch of ships. Um, you know, you've got, uh, um, you know, you know, I think I think we're 
we're both the victims now and the beneficiaries of, of recency bias. And I think if you go back eight years ago, everybody expected the market to rebound up to really high levels. And, you know, everybody wanted to order ships before it was too late. Um, now we've been, you know, and that was, that was because the prior 10 years have been fantastic. Now we're in a period where, you know, the market's up. It's at very impressive levels. In fact, we're approaching the levels that we saw at the peak in the mid, you know, in the, in the, in the aughts. Um, but nobody really seems to want to move in a big way on, on new builds at the moment. And, and I think that has to do with the, the recent experience in the market. The other thing is that there's a lot of new potential legislation coming down the road. And so it's really not clear, you know, what type of ship to build today. Um, and so I think um, that combined with still some real restrictive restrictions on, on availability of capital for shipping and shipbuilding, um, you know, and, 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 and uh, you know, it's still shipyards building at levels which may be perfectly fine and supporting current nav levels at, at fairly good levels, but are still just barely break even for the shipyards. I think there's there's a whole bunch of reasons why there's just not a, not a lot of appetite for new builds right now. It definitely makes sense. And of course, new builds is sort of the uh, uh, warning word or scary word. I mean, new builds is basically an evil word for investors in this sector. So uh, good, uh, good safe answer on that one. Um, in terms of looking at new builds, so in, just in terms of economics, right? in terms of looking at new builds versus the price of an immediate resale versus, say, the price of a five-year tonnage versus, say, the price of a 10-year, we won't go past 10. Um, but you see how those... Th- Three or four options there on those on those age brackets. Um, which sort of asset class looks the most attractive right now? And, and do you think there's any sort of upside to maybe the zero to ten bracket of tankers, or, or do you think those are capped by kind of the new build pricing? Well, I think that uh, you might see a bigger run up in secondhand values versus new building than you normally see because of that reluctance. I think people, you know, very often what happens is if you can get it, let's say a prompt resale ends up costing you $5 million more than a new build, <clears throat> at that point, you might people say, to hell with it, I'm just going to order ships. But, you know, if you order a ship today, it delivers in two and a half years. You know, if you order a series, what's the world going to look like in two and a half years? What's the, what's the regulatory environment going to be? Um, these, are, these are big questions um, that didn't bother people as much in the past, um, but they do today. So, you know, I think you might see a, a bigger run-up and the capacity for a bigger run-up in, I would say, most of all modern secondhand values relative to new buildings than you have in the past. It'd be interesting to see that, of course. Yeah, of course, if the front year or front two years is very optimistic, right? The the economics actually makes it, sometimes you can even see, say, like a five-year vessel trading as high as a new build price because you think about those two years of, of strong rates ahead of you. Um, but of course, as you mentioned, it becomes, I don't want to say dangerous, but it, it becomes a, a sense of, well, hey, am I really going to pay more money for this ship? I'm going to order a new one. And and we hope it doesn't, we hope the balance doesn't doesn't go quite that far because it is a balance, right? Because we want the navs to pick up a little bit, but we also don't want to see a rush to new builds. So, so definitely, right. definitely kind of a kind of a line there. Um, we did have a question uh, kind of from our audience asking about uh, acquisition opportunities. I know you said you don't comment specifically, but are you open to sort of a nav to nav transaction if you saw that with other players? Or if not, like what, what sort of structure would you use to, to acquire ships? You know, we, we, um, we're, we're agnostic as to structure and, and uh, you know, we, we're very focused and, and consistent with our strategy, but, you know, we're, we're looking for ways to build value in the company. And obviously, one way to be would be to find a situation where you can accrete value on a NAV basis, um, you know, and not have any technical impact on the way your stock trades. Um, but there's also the ability to build 
uh, build value through earnings accretion. Um, and, uh, you know, and that, that can be achieved through scale. Um, we're, we're, we've got a very efficient platform already, and we think that it's eminently scalable. So these are things we think about as opportunities come along, and uh, that's how we'll continue to think about it. It definitely makes sense, Tony. And I, I mean, you've broken down your earnings potential, your dividend potential. It's not a matter of of scale at this point. I mean, it's clear that you have enough ships to to make an impact right on the bottom line. I think I think investors just like to generally see uh, signs of consolidation in the sector. I mean, it's been so fragmented for so long, and we look at the success yeah. that we had in the liner industry. And I know it's 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 a it's a lot different, right? That was a different type of industry, but uh, we do see a lot of success in that, and we're starting to see a little bit more consolidation. Say, for example, in the VLGC market, a little bit on the VLCC as well. And then and, and just kind of, I know products is, is a lot further down the line, but I, I think investors do like to see some of that. Um, so Tony, we've covered just a lot of great stuff today. I appreciate your insights. Uh, before we, we part ways on the call here, is there any sort of message you'd like to send to investors regarding uh, maybe something they've missed in the market or like what's your biggest takeaway uh, from IMO 2020 or from the product tanker market that you don't think the market's quite appreciating yet? It's something I wanted to say up front and uh, didn't 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 quite uh, find find the time to squeeze it in. But and I think it's it's the thing that we're most positive on and the most important thing. Um, you know, IMO 2020 is an overlay. We think it's a fairly persistent overlay. It should be with us for at least a year. Um, but what's what's much more important are the underlying fundamentals. And we're still at a point where the order book is a percentage of the existing fleet, and the net fleet growth is at historically low levels. Um, and, you know, in spite of some cross, cross currents and headwinds in the global economy, oil consumption growth uh, continues very strongly um, overall. Uh, and uh, and the, the secular trends in our business around the, uh, the growth in, in, in refinery capacity in areas of production away from consumption. These are all things that are driving demand growth, we think, still continuing in the four to five percent range. And supply net supply net fleet growth or supply growth, um, you know, two percent or less. So that's a great and and very persistent uh, setup for a, a strong market. Um, and the way, really, the only way it can change is either a flood of new building orders or a global recession. <laughs> and until one of those two things happen, we think it's just going to get better and better. So I, I'd say that's what I'd like to leave with: is just don't don't overlook the fundamentals, just because. It's a little bit formulaic and boring and, and uh, been covered uh, in the past. It's very, it's very important, very powerful. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, I think that's a, a great takeaway uh, to leave investors with. I really appreciate your time this morning. And uh, Paul, thanks for joining us as well. Thanks, Jake. Thank you, everyone, for dialing in to our live investor call with Ardmore Shipping. Disclosure, I have no position currently in Ardmore Shipping. I do have ancillary positions in other crude and product tanker investments. Nothing you heard on the call today constitutes official company guidance nor investment recommendations in any form. This call was conducted on the morning of 9 January 2020, so if you're listening to a recording on a later date, please note that disclosures may have changed.